Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 15. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and this episode is Cabeza de Vaca, part four, the final episode in the Cabeza de Vaca saga. We are recording this episode on March 30th, 2021 in Austin, Texas. Thank you again for listening. History always begins in the middle of something, and this time, that's especially true. While most of our episodes can stand alone, at least up to a point, this one will go better if you listen to at least the last two episodes on Cabeza de Vaca. The story is just too weird to start in the middle. Back now? Very good. That said, a brief transition is still in order. The last time the remnants of the ill-fated Narvaez expedition landed on a coastal island somewhere near today's Galveston, Texas, and thereby discovered Texas. Usual air quotes. Of the 80 or so alive at the end of Cabeza de Vaca II, only three remained with our protagonist, Cabeza de Vaca, and would eventually make it back to New Spain. A fifth, Lope de Oviedo, had survived for years alone on the island and chose his lonely life there rather than push south with our heroes. He disappears from history. It is now 1534, five years after the expedition landed in Tampa Bay, and the final four are heading south in search of Panuco, the northernmost outpost of New Spain under the authority of one of that era's nastiest conquistadors, Nuno de Guzman. At this point, the unqualified Christian faith of the Spaniards. We don't know how Christian Esteban might have become sustained them in a way that few modern, secular Americans would really understand. Here's the moment in Cabeza de Vaca's own words, in a chapter titled, How We Cured Some Sick People. The very night we arrived, some Indians came to Castillo, telling him that their heads hurt a great deal, and begging him to cure them. After he made the sign of the cross on them and commended them to God, they immediately said that all their pain was gone. They went to their lodges and brought many prickly pears and a piece of venison. Since news of this spread among them, many other sick people came to him that night to be healed. Each one brought a piece of venison, and we had so much we did not know where to put the meat. We thank God heartily because his mercy and kindness grew every day. We do not know how these Indians first thought that Castillo might have the power to heal, insofar as Castillo wasn't around when Cabeza de Vaca first healed Indians on Mojaldo. But we can reasonably speculate that such religious men would, with their increasing fluency in Indian languages, speak of their God and their abiding faith in his Lord Jesus Christ. The Indians might even have themselves come to suspect some power in the Christian God, insofar as they would have witnessed that these men endured as their slaves under conditions of extreme privation. That faith, and the Christian faith, as it were, might then have led to that first request, and enough believe that Indians who were cured after prayers and blessings might have perceived that they felt better. Regardless, word spread. All four including the erstwhile Muslim Esteban, would eventually take up faith healing, and their fame would grow and precede them as they traveled. 
Indians would continue to bring them sick and injured, and eventually the Spaniards saw their success as, in fact, a reflection of the grace of God. As one of them put it in the joint report, in this way Jesus Christ guided us, and it is infinite mercy was with us, opening roads where there were none. And the hearts of men so savage and untamed, God moved to humility and obedience, as will be seen further on. There was nothing disingenuous in this. Spanish Christians of the 1500s deeply believed in the routine intervention of God in the lives of ordinary people and went to great lengths to invoke that intervention. Indeed, there were moments in this odyssey when even a cynical modern could wonder at their extraordinary good fortune in the midst of unremitting struggle. One day, Cabeza de Vaca got separated from his group while foraging for a particular plant. Here's his account. Since there were no trails in this whole land, I took a longer time than the others in this search. The people returned, and I was left alone. While I was looking for them that night, I got lost. It pleased God that I should find a burning tree by the fire of which I endured that cold night. In the morning I gathered firewood, made two fire brands, and continued searching for them. And I walked this way for five days, always carrying fire and a load of firewood. I did this so that I could make more fire brands and build a fire if one went out and I found myself in a place that had no firewood. I had no other relief against the cold because I was as naked as the day I was born. At night, I did the following to protect myself against the cold. I would go to the thickets in the woods near the rivers and stop there before sunset. I would dig a hole in the ground and in it place a lot of firewood from the many trees. I also would gather a lot of dried wood that had fallen from the trees, and around the hole, I would build four fires crosswise. I was careful to stoke the fires from time to time. I would make some long sheaves from the straw that was available around there to cover myself in that hole and shelter myself from the nighttime cold. One night a spark fell on the straw covering me while I was sleeping and began to burn strongly. Although I jumped out of the hole right away, my hair was singed from the danger in which I had been. All this time I did not eat a bite of food nor find anything I could eat. Since I was barefoot, my feet bled a great deal. Yet God was merciful to me because in all this time the north wind did not blow. If it had, I could not have survived." After five days, I reached a river bank where I found my Indians. They were all very happy to see me, especially the Christians. The following day, we departed and went to a place where we found many prickly pears which satisfied our great hunger. And we gave many thanks to our Lord, because he always came to our aid. I should say so. When I first read this account, all I could think of was the harrowing Jack London story to build a fire, which for some reason has haunted me since I first read it back when I was but a lad. The big difference is being, of course, the Cabeza de Vaca story is true, and he lived. The healing continued, and two incidents particularly catalyzed the new Indian faith in the Christians. 
A nearby tribe called the Susalos were in a low-grade shooting war with their rivals, the Atayos, and were taking casualties. They sent for the Christians to help, particularly with a man who was on the brink of death. Here's Cabeza de Vaca's account. When I neared their huts, I saw that the sick man whom we were supposed to heal was dead because there were many people weeping around him and his lodge was dismantled, a sign that its owner was dead. When I got to the Indian, I saw that his eyes were turned. He had no pulse, and it seemed to me he showed all the signs of being dead. Durante said the same thing. I removed a mat that covered him, and as best I could, I beseeched our Lord to be pleased to grant him health and to grant health to all who needed it. After I made the sign of the cross over him and breathed on him many times, they brought his bow to me along with a basket full of ground, prickly pears. Then they took me to cure many others who had sleeping sickness. Having done this, we returned to our dwellings. Our Indians, to whom I had given the prickly pears, remained there and returned that night. They said the man who was dead and whom I had healed in their presence had gotten up well and walked and eaten and spoken to them, and that all the people we had healed had gotten well and were very happy. This caused great wonder and awe, and nothing else was spoken about in the entire land. Well, it just so happens that your friend here is only mostly dead. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Miracle Max would have been impressed. The second miraculous healing involved more than mere faith. Cabeza de Vaca performed actual surgery and thereby cemented their reputation. Again, in his own words, they brought a man to me whom they said had been wounded by an arrow a long time before in the right side of his back. They said that the arrowhead was over his heart He said that it hurt a great deal and that it caused him to suffer all the time. I touched him and felt the arrowhead and noticed that it had gone through cartilage. With a knife that I had, I opened his chest through to that spot and saw that the arrowhead had gone through and would be very difficult to remove. I cut further, stuck the point of the knife in, and at last removed it with great difficulty. It was very long. With a deer bone, I practiced my trade as a physician and gave him two stitches. After I had stitched, he was losing a lot of blood. I stopped the bleeding with hair scraped from an animal skin. When I removed the arrowhead, they asked me for it and I gave it to them. The entire village came to see it and they sent it further inland so that people there could see it. Because of this cure, they made many dances and festivities, as is their custom. The following day, I cut the stitches, and the Indian was healed. The incision I had made looked only like one of the lines in the palm of one's hand, and he said that he felt no pain or suffering at all. And this cure gave us such standing throughout the land that they esteemed and valued us to their utmost capacity." The knife, it must be said, would have been flint. The sutures? Maybe strips of deer hide or sinew. 
In any case, our four heroes spent about eight months with the Avaveras, no longer treated as slaves, but as prestigious medicine men. This was not a great life because the Avaveras were, like the rest of the tribes in South Texas, always on the move and always short of calories. But it was no doubt a step-function improvement over the previous six years. In the spring of 1535, they said goodbye to all that and resumed their journey south to, they hoped, Panuco. They crossed the Rio Grande and kept moving south with the help of tribes along the way that in each case had been alerted in advance of their special capacities and were attracted to the prestige conferred by having them in their midst. During this phase of his narrative, Cabeza de Vaca wrote several chapters with anthropological observations of the Indian tribes they had encountered since they had arrived six years before, which, in the main, were remarkably objective. His work has been essential to modern scholars trying to piece together the history of the now extinct Texan Indian tribes, and it's well worth reading on its own or is rendered by the authors who have retold his story, such as Andres Resendez. I did find two passages particularly interesting, so we'll pass them along in Cabeza de Vaca's words with an inline comment or two from me. Throughout this land, they got drunk on a certain smoke. Modern scholars say this was peyote. And give all they have to obtain it. They also drink a tea made from the leaves of a tree that resembles the live oak, which they toast in vessels on a fire. After the leaves are toasted, they fill the vessel with water and keep it on the ground. When it has twice come to a boil, they pour it into another vessel and cool it with half a gourd. When it is very foamy, they drink it as hot as they can stand it. From the time they take this tea out of the vessel until they drink it, they shout, asking who wants to drink. When the women hear these shouts, they stand still without daring to move. Even if they are carrying a heavy load, they do not dare move. If by chance a woman moves during this time, they shame her and beat her and very angrily pour out the brew they were about to drink. They vomit the beverage they have drunk quite easily and without embarrassment. They give the following reason for their custom, saying that if a woman with an earshot moves when they want a drink, something terrible enters their body through the tea and soon thereafter causes them to die. The whole time that the water is boiling, the vessel is supposed to be covered. If by chance it is uncovered and a woman passes by, they throw it out and do not drink any of it. This is the first known European observation of Indians drinking a stimulating beverage, which in fact they did by one means or another all over the hemisphere. As for that bit about it being ruined if any of the women twitched, my rejection of presentism sadly prevents me from commenting. Then there's this, also in Cabeza de Vaca's words. During the time I spent with these people, I saw one wicked thing, and that was a man married to another man. These are womanish, impotent men who cover their bodies like women and do women's tasks. They shoot bows and carry heavy loads. Among these people, we saw many of these womanish men who are more robust and taller than other men, and who carry heavy loads. 
From the annotations of my edition of Cabeza de Vaca's narrative, there's this elaborating note. A similar custom of entrusting what we can take to be homosexuals with a work that was usually performed by women was observed during the 18th century by Bernard Romans as he traveled among the Choctaws of Florida. W.W. Newcomb Jr. in his book The Indians of Texas from Prehistoric to Modern Times also points out that among the Cohiltecas, there was a group of homosexual men known as Berdaches, who dressed like women, carried heavy loads, and lived with other men. History, read deeply enough, is a never-ending voyage of discovery. During the summer of 1535, now almost seven years since their rafts had touched down near Galveston, the four moved south along the east coast of Texas and Mexico, at one point getting within 200 miles of the northernmost outpost of Imperial Spain along that coast. Had they known it, in three weeks of determined walking, they might have reached secular salvation to supplement the spiritual salvation they'd already achieved. But then, in the words of Professor Resendez, the survivors did something extraordinary— they suddenly and inexplicably shifted course to the west and north, away from the coast and the promise of salvation. There's no record of what led them to one of the most mysterious and stunning decisions of their entire voyage. The decision to abandon their quest for Panuco and instead venture deep into the heart of the unknown continent. Of course, they did not know how close they were. But mere uncertainty would not explain why these men who had struggled to head in this direction for seven years would suddenly veer to the west into the heart of the Sierra Madre Oriental. Maybe the hundreds and sometimes thousands of Indians who now idolized them and traveled with them steered the four to the west for their own reasons, perhaps to enjoy the prestige of showing them off. And the four went along because the prestige was going to their heads. Regardless, shortly after pivoting to the west and away from the route to Banyuko, the group came across Indian travelers schlepping flour ground from maize. This was the first corn they had seen in the seven years since they had come ashore in Texas. In addition to the obvious possibility of tacos, to the Spanish maize flour signaled agricultural and therefore settled Indians. Shortly thereafter, another group of Indian travelers were carrying artifacts smelted from copper, including a bell. Corn in the capacity to mine and smelt copper at least hinted at a sophisticated urban culture, worlds apart from the hunter-gatherers in Texas. Our four medicine men and their growing band of Indian acolytes headed in the direction of the corn and the copper. Andres Resendez wrote that the four wanderers were no longer mere castaways. They had become explorers once more, heading west to find the settled people who knew how to cast metals. But theirs was a most peculiar expedition. Four naked and unarmed outsiders were led by hundreds, even thousands of Indians. They were fed and protected and passed off from one indigenous group to the next, as if they were prized possessions moving along an ancient trading route across the continent. 
There's a great deal of arcane academic disputation over the precise route of our travelers. But for our purposes, we'll pick Professor Resendis's preferred route. For the rest of 1535, the final four and a growing army of three or four thousand Indians move northwest, now toward West Texas, then back across the Rio Grande, where the Rio Conscious flows in, roughly at Presidio, Texas, then along the north bank of the Rio Grande for a bit more than a hundred miles to the northwest, and then again across into Mexico, heading generally southwest until reaching the coastal plain between the Sierra Madre de Occidental and the Pacific Ocean in late 1535 or early 1536. More than 300 miles of this journey from West Texas was through cultivated maize country, and the Indians of this country were much wealthier in material terms than the Indians of the Gulf Coast and South Texas. They lived in permanent houses, wore shoes, and the women were fully dressed in cotton shirts and deerskin skirts, thought by the Spaniards to be the most decently clad women we had ever seen in any part of the Indies. Word of the healers had spread throughout this land of maize, and sick and healthy people came from all over to see the strange healers and asked that the sign of the cross be made over them. Mothers brought their new babies to be blessed, and the four were showered with gifts, including traded goods, such as turquoises, from far away. Cabeza de Vaca's description seems almost cultish. Throughout these lands, those who were at war with one another made peace to come to greet us and give us all they owned. In this way, we left the whole country in peace. We told them in sign language, which they understood, that in heaven there was a man whom we called God, who had created heaven and earth, and that we worshipped him and considered him our Lord and did everything that he commanded. We said that all good things come from his hand, and that if they did the same, things would go very well for them. We found that they were so well disposed for it that if we could have communicated perfectly in a common language, we could have converted them to Christianity. From then on, at sunrise, with a great shout, they would stretch their hands toward heaven and run them over their entire bodies. They did the same thing at sunset. They were affable and resourceful people and capable of pursuing anything. Our heroes knew that their survival depended on their continuing mystique, and so they moved to communicating almost entirely through the gregarious and apparently chill Esteban. By this time, the four of them knew six different Indian languages among them, but these bore a little relationship to the thousand language differences, by Cabeza de Vaca's estimate, spoken in the throng of Indians following them around. Esteban was particularly friendly and able to make himself understood through signs and became the external face of the spiritual movement. Roughly Christmas 1535, in a village called Corazones in the Sierra Madre Occidental. Castillo saw an Indian wearing a Spanish buckle and horseshoe nail around his neck as jewelry. Quoting Cabeza de Vaca, Castillo took it away from him and we asked the Indian what it was. They replied that it had come from heaven. We questioned them further, asking them who had 
brought it from there. They told us that some bearded men like us with horses, lances, and swords had come there from heaven and gone to that river and had speared two Indians. Trying very hard to act disinterested, we asked them what had happened to those men. They replied that the men went down to the sea, put their lances under water, and then went under the water themselves. Then they saw them go over the water toward the sunset. They were getting close now, traveling southwest some 240 miles over a period of weeks, pausing at times because of heavy rain. The group, still numbering in the hundreds, if not the thousands, reached a spot where Europeans had recently spent the night, evidenced by stakes for horses and other signs. The next morning, almost certainly in April 1536, Cabeza de Vaca, Esteban, and 11 Indians set out to track the Christians. They pushed themselves to cover 30 miles that first day, passing three other abandoned Christian encampments. The very next day, they came within sight of the mounted Spanish slaving team we met in the opening moments of part one of our series on Cabeza de Vaca. With some back and forth, Esteban went back to retrieve Castillo, Dorantes, and the remaining hundreds of Indians who joined the encampment with Cabeza de Vaca and the Spanish horsemen five days later. Nine years had passed since the Narvaez expedition landed in Tampa Bay. Many things had changed in that time. At a political level, Spanish rule in Mexico had become if it were possible, even more inhumane. The failure of Narvaez to settle his assigned lands meant that Hernán Cortés and Nuno de Guzmán had pushed north beyond their royal mandates, looking for more gold and Indians to enslave, which at this point was at least technically illegal in Spanish America. Guzman in particular was one of the nastiest of the nasty, so blatant in his brutality, corruption, and slaving practices that the bishop-elect of Mexico excommunicated him. It was Guzman who sat at the top of the chain of command of these Spanish horsemen. Meanwhile, the four Narvaez survivors were themselves transformed. Esteban had risen to a station of great prestige in the eyes of thousands of people who revered him and three Spanish nobles who had depended on him. His return to, quote, civilization, as it were, must have been at the very best a mixed blessing and more likely a terrible regression. This would have consequences for the exploration of the lands that now constitute the United States. Cabeza de Vaca, Castillo, and Dorantes, meanwhile, had become convinced that the Spanish were doing it wrong. In their considered and fully informed view no doubt hashed out in conversation over the years, the Indians would contribute far more to the Spanish project in the New World if they were free to deploy their superior agriculture and knowledge of the hemisphere than if they were enslaved into extinction. This was more than Stockholm Syndrome. It was a vision for the future of New Spain that makes eminent sense to any of us who have, with the benefit of hindsight, seen that free labor generates vastly more economic value than slave labor. This was not, however, well understood 500 years ago anywhere in the world. Naturally, this conflict of visions 
brought the Spanish survivors into, shall we say, a difference of opinion with the captain of the Spanish slavers. In this, across the centuries, Cabeza de Vaca's narrative is moving in its sincerity, especially since it was written for Spanish nobles who would not necessarily sympathize with the attitudes of one of their own who had so clearly gone native rather than die like a warrior. Quote, After this, we had many great quarrels with the Christians because they wanted to enslave the Indians we had brought with us. We were so angry that when we departed, we left many Turkish-style bows that we were carrying, as well as many pouches and arrows, which we lost because we forgot about them. We gave the Christians many buffalo-hide blankets and other things we had. We had great difficulty in persuading the Indians to return to their homes, to feel secure, and to plant corn. They wanted only to accompany us until they had handed us over to other Indians, as was their custom. They feared that if they returned without doing this, they would die. But they did not fear the Christians or their lances when they were with us. The Christians did not like this and had their interpreter tell them that we were the same kind of people they were who had gotten lost a long time before and that we were people of little luck and valor. They said that they were the lords of that land and that the Indians should obey and serve them. But the Indians believed very little or nothing of what they were saying. They said instead that the Christians were lying because we had come from the east and they had come from the west. That we healed the sick and they killed the healthy. That we were naked and barefoot and they were dressed and on horseback with lances. That we coveted nothing but instead gave away everything that was given to us and kept none of it. While the sole purpose of the others was to steal everything they found, never giving anything to anybody. In this manner, they talked about us, praising everything about us and saying the contrary about the others. Now, this passage seems both entirely plausible and yet a little too Christ-like for my tastes. It's hard to know. I suppose in the end, it is easy enough to forgive Cabeza de Vaca a little grandiose religiosity. He certainly earned it the hard way. The rest of the journey was fairly straightforward, so I'll touch only the highlights before moving on to the more interesting epilogue. The group, now led by the slaving party, headed south to Culiacan, a Spanish settlement on the Pacific coast. There, the apparently emotional mayor dissolved into tears on learning of their trials, and he apologized for his captain's behavior on their encounter. From there, the four set out for Mexico City, still in their native garb, stopping along the way to see the notorious Governor Guzman. Guzman treated them respectfully and gave them clothes from his own wardrobe to help them reintegrate into Spanish society. Having gotten so used to, well, nudity and deerskins, Cabeza de Vaca could not wear Spanish finery for, he says, many days. This rings true, right? I suspect that people who have been working in yoga pants for the last year will feel at least a little this way when they have to stuff themselves back into fashion-forward professional garb. In any case, 
The now empowered heroes raised the topic of the treatment of the Indians with Guzman, who almost certainly rolled his eyes and did them the favor of ushering them along to Mexico City rather than clapping them in irons. They arrived in Mexico City on Sunday, July 23, 1536. It was the eve of the day of St. James, and it was party time with bullfights and jousting tournaments and so forth. Viceroy Don Antonio de Mendoza and the Marques Hernán Cortés warmly received the heroes, giving them food and clothes. Now we'll have Andres Resendez take us home. The survivors could not help but become pawns in a power struggle. The Viceroy and the Marquis were rivals, and the survivors' unexpected arrival would plunge them into a headlong competition over the exploration of the vast lands north of Mexico. The value of what the wanderers knew was incalculable. Mendoza opened his house and kept them as honored guests. He also agreed to look after the few dozen Indians from the north that Cabeza de Vaca and his companions had brought. In return, Viceroy Mendoza was able to question the four men in the comfort of his home and even asked them to draw a map of all the lands they had visited. As the celebrations unfolded, Mexico City succumbed to a newfound fever to explore these marvelous regions of which the castaways spoke. Unwittingly, the castaways had ushered in yet another wave of conquests. This seems to me like the power of positive thinking. So what would become of the final four? Let's consider them in the order of their importance for the history of the Americans, which is, after all, the point of the podcast. Of the four, Esteban was the only one who would return to the lands that now constitute the United States. The aforementioned Viceroy Mendoza was keen on using his newfound intelligence to launch expeditions to the north, including north of the Rio Grande. He tried to recruit the Spanish survivors, one by one, to lead or at least guide an expedition, but they each declined. Mendoza's last possible intelligence officer was Esteban, so Mendoza naturally offered to buy him from Durantes. Durantes refused to sell, even when Mendoza sent him the very generous sum of 500 pesos on a silver plate, probably because of the bond of genuine affection and loyalty that had been forged between them during their years in the wilderness. In the end, however, Durantes freed Esteban, without payment, so that he could serve Mendoza voluntarily, which he did. In late 1538, Mendoza dispatched Esteban on a reconnaissance mission led by a Franciscan friar named Marcos de Minza. The Minza mission would be Esteban's last, and it led directly to the exploration of the American Southwest in 1540 by Francisco Vasquez de Coronado. We will return to Esteban's fate when we come back to the Southwest in a few weeks' time. Cabeza de Vaca returned to Spain in 1537 after a harrowing crossing of the Atlantic that involved storms and evading French privateers in the Azores. Fortunately for history, Cabeza de Vaca's luck continued and he made it back to Spain. His goal was to secure the right to settle La Florida, the territory originally granted to Narvaez, 
and to implement his vision of Indian free labor in the doing. Unfortunately, the Crown had already granted a new La Florida patent to the immensely successful and wealthy Hernando de Soto, just back from his stint as the number two man in the conquest of the Inca in Peru. Cabeza de Vaca met with Soto, who asked him to join on, but Cabeza de Vaca did not want to be second fiddle again. And anyway, Soto's reputation was such that there was no chance he would adopt Cabeza de Vaca's ideas about Indian governance. In the end, Cabeza de Vaca wrangled a patent at the other end of the hemisphere to lead the settlement of an area around Rio de la Plata in what is now Argentina, Uruguay, and Paraguay. There he did indeed attempt a version of missionary leadership with the Indians there, a tribe of cannibals called the Guaranis. Suffice it to say, it didn't work, and in the spring of 1544, the local Spanish rebelled and arrested him for, effectively, incompetence, and sent him back to Spain in chains. After years of litigation, Cabeza de Vaca would be fundamentally vindicated, but he would never actually accomplish anything more than being the consummate survivor, the founder of North America's first mass religious movement, the first ethnologist to document the practices of Indians in the future United States, and the discoverer of Texas, the significance of all of which people of the time did not properly appreciate. Castillo and Dorantes never returned to the Old World or to the territory that is now the United States. Viceroy Mendoza married both of them off to esteemed widows and granted them large land holdings with thousands of Indians tasked with serving up significant portion of the agricultural output to the owners. There is apparently no record of their treatment of the Indians one way or the other. We have to assume they operated the holdings just as other absentee landlords of the day would have done with a practical regard for profits. We are now at the end of the story of Cabeza de Vaca, or at least our version of it. If you want to dig deeper, and there is much, much more, I highly recommend Andres Resendez's book, A Land So Strange. If you want to listen to a great podcast series, check out the third season of Brandon Seal's podcast, A New History of Old Texas. Brandon does Cabeza de Vaca, over 25 professionally produced episodes, including his expertly pronounced Spanish. Thank you again for listening. Please subscribe to the History of the Americans in your podcatcher of choice. Rate the podcast robustly. And if the spirit moves you, please write a review on Apple or wherever you listen. And we now have a Facebook page, which you can find by searching for The History of the Americans on Facebook. As always, please send me comments, criticisms, corrections, questions, and pats on the back by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com or on the website for the podcast thehistoryoftheamericans.com Thank you again.